All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian McCullough. As you know, we've been trying to cover from every angle the innovations that e-commerce sites in general, and Amazon.com specifically, brought into the world. And that's why I was absolutely thrilled to get to speak with Greg Linden, who was one of the early Amazon engineers who was responsible for a lot of the personalization and data-driven innovations at Amazon, especially the vaunted recommendation engine. In this episode, Greg explains in great detail the technological challenges involved, but also gives us a conceptual and almost philosophical background to the ways that harnessing data and deploying personalized systems can improve commerce systems. My thanks to Greg Linden for this excellent conversation and episode. Greg Linden, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Oh, great to be here. So let's let's start by uh, painting a scene here. Um, it's it's late 1996, early 1997, I guess, and um, you're you're graduating. Um, are, are you graduating from from the uh, University of Washington at this point? Uh, well, no, actually. So I was at uh, University of Washington in the computer science department working on. Uh, AI research, had a few projects going, and I decided to take a break, and uh, I was interested in going to uh, going to another company for, I was just planning on a year at the time, uh, ended up being a lot more than that, but I was just planning on leaving for a year, and ended up going to Amazon. So you, your original intention was, was to go back uh, back to school eventually? Right, and finish uh, finish my Ph.D., but uh, but instead I ended up at Amazon at the time. It was just a, a small bookstore. Uh, it was only selling books. Uh, it uh, it was brand new to be selling uh, books on the web, uh, and uh, it was a very, very small company just sitting there on 2nd Avenue in Seattle, right across the street from a methadone clinic and a kind of crazy wig shop. And Amazon was the only company that, that you um, looked around at at the time? Uh, no, actually, I did talk to a few others, but I was really excited about the idea of selling books. It, it was really fun to me to uh, try to get the right book into uh, the right person's hands. Well, uh, so tell me about the, the interview process, the hiring process at Amazon. Well, at the time, Amazon was really small. I got to talk with uh, Jeff Bezos uh, for a while, uh, talked to uh, Shell, who's the first employee. Uh, all the software engineering team fit in a small room at that point, so I got to talk to a lot of the, the very early people, the people who had built the company, um, including uh, you know, when, uh, when Amazon first started, uh, when a sale would come in, a little bell would go off, and this was the team that built all of that uh, initial thing. That bell quickly became a din and had to be turned off. Uh, I was just a little bit before my time, and I got to interview with all those early people. 
So you you uh, you sign on uh, early 1997. That's right. Um, and the. You're describing it as you know this is such early days. It's still such a small company, and in, in fact, I guess space was was so limited that that your first desk is is in the kitchen of of the offices. That's right. That's right. So Amazon was growing extremely fast, even at this point. Uh, the sales were coming in rapidly. The company was trying to grow and grow and grow. And it was uh, in this tiny space there on Second Avenue, and there wasn't any office space left. People were double bunking up in uh, in offices, triple bunking up. And my first office was a kitchen. Uh, so I was sitting there in the back of a kitchen. People would come in and get their tea while I was working. And uh, there I was typing away in this kitchen. But it was a, it was a good way to actually uh, get to know everybody in the company because everybody comes in there at one point or another, right? That's right. In fact, uh, in fact, I ended up uh, trying to hook people into conversations because you first come into a company, everyone's busy um, and you don't know anything. Uh, so I put out a little candy jar and tried to attract people uh, to walk over to my desk uh, so I could ask them a couple questions while they're there trying to uh, try to get a piece of candy. And and I have to I ask everybody this because it's the it's the fun little story. But um, I, I'm assuming you assembled your own door desk. <laughs> you know, actually, I don't think I ever did build a door desk. Oh. The door desks were, were pretty funny, though. You know, it was essentially a four uh, four by fours, a big construction four by fours. Uh, you know, stapled, well, angle bracketed, but basically stapled to a uh, to a door, literally a door. Uh, it was an enormous desk was the advantage. Uh, you ended up with this huge uh, desk, and everybody had them, um, except me at the beginning because I was in a kitchen and I had a card table. Uh, but then I got a door desk later. So uh, describe for us then um, n- not just the state of the company, but the, the state of the technology that um, you, you start to, to work with. At this point, um, it's it's the system that Shell Caffin and, and Paul Davis has, have put together, and and what is that system? What what are, you, what are you looking at and learning? That's right, right. I mean, this was this was quite early, so there was just a single uh, web server and a single database. This is way before uh, way before people started scaling out the system to have multiple web servers and and multiple databases. There was just one web server and one database. The company only sold. Uh, books. Uh, we, we didn't uh, we didn't start selling uh, music and video yet. We weren't international. We were you know, U.S. only. Uh, only had one warehouse at this point, and it was in Seattle. Um, so it was very early days. It was it was literally uh, just a bookstore uh, and just selling books. And um, this was also the very very early days of the web. So. Uh, these days, people are uh, using you know, technologies like uh, CSS, cascading style sheets, and they're using JavaScript to make their web pages dynamic. Um, this is way before all of that. In fact, uh, cookies had just come out and weren't uh, even widely supported, so we couldn't even count on uh, being able to keep track of people's shopping carts using a cookie. Uh, that's how early this was. Uh, HTML was was very very basic. A lot of people still used uh, text-based web browsers to uh, to access the site. So we still had the ability to uh, for the site to display well and for people to be able to order books uh, using links, which is a text-based web browser. Uh, people could still. Uh, email in in order to order the book. Some people preferred to email in. Some people oddly preferred to email their credit card uh, in. They wouldn't type their credit card into the web pages, but they would email it, <laughs> which, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Um, so very, very early days of the web. This is uh, when very few people were comfortable with online shopping. And the web you know, barely worked. It was only kind of one step above the extremely early things like Archie and Gopher that, uh, that were the predecessors to the web. And what's your, your specific remit? What are, what are the projects that, that you're put on initially? Uh, well, you know, like uh, in most companies, uh, you're given a first project where you're supposed to uh, do something small just to get used to the code base. Uh, I think there had been a project uh, sitting around uh, that I was uh, – 
that I was given really early on uh, about uh, trying to do discounting. Uh, that project uh, that project ended up uh, being uh, being not very successful. It touched kind of every piece of the code, so it was successful in that way because pricing impacts almost everything. Um, but uh, ultimately, what ended up working really well was couponing. Uh, this was a different mechanism where people uh, were essentially labeled as part of a group when they uh, came to a special page on the website. Uh, it was called group discounts, uh, and that did, that didn't actually go extremely well. Uh, but pretty soon after that, I got involved in the personalization and recommendations on the website. So this is everything that tries to make the Amazon store different uh, when a different customer comes to it. It's like the store automatically adapts to you, changes to you, and tries to uh, feature things you might be interested in. Well, let's let's get into that a little bit because you know one of the one of the revolutions of e-commerce is not just, you know, things like, uh, you know, having an unlimited store, unlimited products and things like that, but it's also the data that you can, that, that you can mine, that you can, um, use to, to serve customers better. And, um, and that's sort of, that's the personalization that you're talking about. That's, that's the direction that, that Amazon moved in and really started to, to revolutionize things. Right. Uh, that's right. That's right. So you have, you know, on the web, if you're an online store, uh, you have this really unusual opportunity to show different stores to different people. You don't have to just show the same storefront. It doesn't have to look like walking into the same bookstore and all the shelves are in the same spot as one customer walks in. You can take each customer as they walk in and kind of magically rearrange the store as they walk into the room. So the shelves, for, in my case, I like uh, maybe science fiction and nonfiction. So the shelves for science fiction and nonfiction might shuffle up to the front as I walk into uh, the store. And the shelves for, let's say, romance novels, uh, which I would never buy, uh, kind of shuffle into the back and disappear. And that way, I see the things that I'm interested in in the store. The things I'm less interested in uh, kind of disappear to the back. It's taken a lot of people a very long time to kind of get used to this idea that you can present a different store or a different face to every customer that arrives on the web. Newspapers, for example, for a long time just presented the exact same front page on the web, the front, same front page that they print out uh, to every person that came to their website. And only now are they starting to say, oh, you know, we could actually show different news to different people depending on who they are and what they might be interested in reading. And also that would lead to obviously things like um, recommendations, recommendations based on previous purchases or previous searches. And and that's sort of uh, what you start to work on. Like, Did you even... Um, have the have ideas in this direction that you even brought up in your initial interview with Amazon? Uh, well, that's right. I mean, I was uh, I was in artificial intelligence at uh, University of Washington, and at the time, uh, there was a really popular uh, movie recommender. This was really early in the kind of mid '90s. Uh, it recommended movies, kind of like Netflix does now, uh, and it was called Firefly. Uh, and I was fascinated. Oh my God! With I can't believe I, I, you know what? I haven't thought about that in years. I, I, I yeah. remember using Firefly. Yeah, wow. Yeah, Firefly back in the mid '90s. Um, it was a, you know, it was a very popular uh, site. It would recommend, uh, you know, movies for you to watch based on the movies you had rated, just like Netflix does very well right now. Um, and uh, I was fascinated by that. I thought that was great. And when I talked to uh, Jeff, that was a big part of what I talked to him about. I said, you know, you should be doing this for books. You should be recommending the next book that uh, people want to buy. Uh, you should help them find books. Uh, it's really, really hard to know about new books that come out. It's really hard to uh, know about a book that, might, that you might be interested in that you would never think of searching for on your own because you don't even know it exists. Uh, but if you can help people discover that book, if you can surface that book for them, um, then you know, you're doing them this this huge uh, this huge favor. You're, you're giving them knowledge, uh, and I, well, I thought that this and, was and, great. And in a way, that's you'd, you'd be able to do what the the traditional bookstore bookseller uh, was able to do for people in person. Be, be the be the the guy that says, "Well, here here's the next book you should try." That sort of thing. 
That's right. That's right. So you know, when you go into you know, this often this often often happens in a, you know, uh, good bookstores or you know, I guess it's hard to rent movies anymore. There's not very many of those left. But you know, it used to be the case that you go into a good uh, kind of uh, geeky uh, movie rental place, and you could tell them some movies you like, and they would recommend some other movies that you haven't seen yet. Uh, same thing with books. Um, and this is exactly that. Uh, so the uh, you go to Amazon, and uh, Amazon helps you find uh, the next book you want to buy, just like that helpful clerk. And in fact, it's actually using people to do it as well. So the way that the computer is doing it isn't just magically coming up with these recommendations of the next book you might be interested in. Instead, what it's doing is looking at what other customers have found that you haven't found yet. So they're like, hey, you know, this customer looks just like you. They seem to be interested in just the same kind of books you are. And this customer found this book you haven't seen yet. So maybe you're going to be interested in that book. And it tells you what that other customer found. And it does that all without anyone having to do any work and all anonymously, uh, which, is, which is just fantastic. And that's basically how the recommender algorithms work. And it's, it, obviously that's something we're all familiar with, that you know, customers who bought this also bought whatever. Um, right. So w- when, you, when you guys are developing this idea, is there, are there other... Um, other sites aside from the one that you mentioned, but like other companies that had tried stuff like this before, or are you basically um, feeling your way in the dark and, and inventing this yourselves? Uh, well, that's right. So the customers who bought this also bought featured. Now that's a really popular one, uh, and that's kind of the easiest uh, form of personalization. Basically, it just says you know you're lo- you're looking at a book right now. Um, did you know that people who look at this book or people who buy this book um, also tend to be interested in these other books? And it's basically a correlation. It says, uh, you know, customer, I mean, it's pretty much literally customers who bought this or customers who viewed this uh, also were interested in, and it shows you that list. Um, that was first done actually by another person at Amazon, a brilliant uh, developer who had been there from nearly the beginning uh, named Eric Benson. He uh, came up with that customers who bought this also bought. I worked on it as well, but only later uh, to optimize it. Uh, but he did, he did all the early work on that. Um, and that is, that's a fantastic feature. It's incredibly helpful. I use it all the time to find new things. And I think I, and other people clearly do too. Sure, it shows absolutely. Up in, um, in all the metrics. Um, then on top of that, uh, I built a, a recommendation engine. And the recommendation engine uh, is, is very similar. It uses an algorithm called item-to-item collaborative filtering. And the way that works is it basically takes a list of things that you have bought in the past. It takes all your past purchases, and it says, what are all the things that are related to all the things you bought in the past? And it ranks them and then shows them to you as recommendations. So it's actually a pretty straightforward uh, algorithm. It's very fast. Uh, If given enough data, it works really well. It can explain why it made a recommendation. So it can say, uh, it can say, uh, you know, you're seeing this recommendation because you bought this and this in the past. That's a really nice feature. Um, And the algorithms that existed at the time, including the algorithm that was used for Firefly, actually, the movie recommender we talked about earlier, Uh, didn't have a lot of these properties. It worked slightly differently. Um, a little bit earlier, I described uh, I described finding other customers who bought the same books as you. So I'd said, uh, you know, let's go out and look for all the customers who uh, seem to be similar to you, seem to behave like you. Uh, seem to be interested in the same things you are. Okay, now we found all these people, and they seem similar to you. Now, what did those people do that you haven't seen yet? Uh, and that's, uh, that's the original collaborative filtering algorithm. It's people-based instead of item-based. And unfortunately, the people-based version turns out to have a bunch of properties that means it doesn't work very well uh, at really large scale. Like if you have millions of customers and millions of products, uh, that algorithm just completely falls over. Uh, and that was the algorithm that was used by Firefly and a bunch of other people at the time. And this new algorithm 
uh, turned out to be much faster, uh, work much better, and it's the basis for a lot of the recommendations that are done on the Amazon site, including the ones that change the homepage. And one of the problems um, that I read about, and by the way, um, a lot of the details I, I got for this, uh, Greg has a blog that that he's recounted a lot of his early Amazon stories, which I'll link to in the, in the show notes. But one of the problems that I read about that I found fascinating was like, for example, what if you have one product that's so popular, almost everyone's going to buy it, like a Harry Potter book. When a new Harry Potter book comes out, like that, that could also create hiccups in the algorithms as well, right? Right, that's exactly right. And so uh, both of these two algorithms, actually, so the original collaborative filtering algorithm used by Firefly and others at the time, um, and this new algorithm, item-to-item collaborative filtering, are susceptible to uh, what we call the Harry Potter problem because we're a books we were a bookstore at the time, um, and uh, you know it, it, if you look at any customer, um, you know every, pretty much every customer had bought the book Harry Potter, and so if I am trying to generate recommendations and I look over my list of books and it, it doesn't matter what you bought if you buy you know all science fiction, it's going to say well customers who bought uh, those science fiction books also bought Harry Potter, you know, <laughs> and so right. because it's true, right? I mean, it's the most popular uh, book to all customers, and it doesn't matter what you've done; it's going to recommend Harry Potter. Um, so there turns out to be a tweak that you can do to get around that, uh, and this turns out to be a really important tweak, uh, both to the recommendation algorithms and to uh, things like customers who bought this, uh, which we called similarities at the time. Um, and the the tweak is what you really want is the uniquely uh, best selling items, the, the items that are unusual to sell uh, to this group of people. So Harry Potter isn't unusual to sell to someone. Uh, you know, if you've bought a bunch of science fiction books, it's not people who buy a bunch of science fiction books don't buy Harry Potter at an unusually high rate. They just buy it at the same rate as everybody else. So you don't end up recommending Harry Potter anymore because Harry Potter doesn't stand out as an unusual book to buy if you've bought a bunch of science fiction. Uh, you know, likewise, uh, if you bought a bunch of programming books, um, you'd now be recommended a programming book because you people who buy a few programming books buy another programming book at a really high rate, a usually high rate compared to the people who like have bought romance novels. So it's almost a combination of the algorithm is combining, you know, the percentages, what you're likely to do, but also like the strong outliers. Like it, it, this is this is this the most interesting, unusual thing that, that this group has in common. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it looks for essentially unusual behavior um, that, uh, you know, if you if you bought this book, what's. Uh, what do people do at kind of an unusually high rate after buying that book? Well, they buy this other book, um, but they but Harry Potter isn't an unusual thing to do. And you got to be a little bit careful with this, by the way. It's extremely easy to let uh, you know things that kind of happen vanishingly small rates uh, then get recommended. So you can end up, you know, recommending really really obscure titles mm -hmm. uh, if you go too far with this technique. And what you want is kind of something in the middle where. Uh, you know, where you're not recommending things that are not unusual, but you're not recommending things that are extremely unusual and just, you know, so out there that, uh, you know, only three people have bought it. So you're doing this this tinkering. You're coming up with these these tweaks to uh, recommendation uh, technology, and, and you're kind of doing this on the side? Like, this was, this was your own initiative, um, and it wasn't initially assigned to you, right? That's right. I mean, I was supposed to be working on other things like, uh, you know, keeping the website up, uh, which I was doing. Uh, I was uh, you know, working a lot on uh, performance. Um, you know, I launched I launched a feature that uh, allowed uh, the website to display availability of the items in real time, uh, which was something it couldn't do before. Um, 
I did a bunch of other performance optimizations of the website. Uh, later, I helped split the website, so I said it only ran on one web server. Later, I split it into helped split it into pieces uh, with a couple other uh, people, some very talented other uh, programmers who knew a lot more about that than I did. Uh, it was fantastic to work with some of these uh, some of these guys. That was one of the great things, just how much you learn. Um, but uh, you know, on the side. Now, almost like the you know famous Google 20% time, uh, I kept working on things I really wanted to work on. One example of that, uh, one example of that was the recommendation engine. So that was not a sanctioned project. Um, I I built that entirely on my own and coded up a prototype, and then it just ended up launching because the prototype was so convincing. Well, actually, uh, and, and, and once it does launch, are, is the data positive in terms of, wow, this really had, a, had an effect on sales, jumping percentages and things like that? That's right. That's right. And, you know, I, in order to figure all that out, actually, the Amazon site at the time didn't have the ability to figure out, uh, you know, what, what was leading to sales. Like, you know, let's say a, uh, a sale comes in, you know, someone gets all the way through the order process, they buy the book. Well, how do you do credit assignment? How do you say, okay, you know, let's go back through the website and figure out what was responsible for that sale? Uh, who gets credit, right? Was it search that generated that sale? Did the, guy, did the person, like, go through the browse categories, you know, go through go down through books and then science fiction? And right, then, what, I don't what, know. what we would think of as basic analytics, like, you know, uh, user flow and stuff like that today. Right, right. This is this stuff is all uh, all routine nowadays. But you know, this is way back in uh, '97, beginning of the web. You know, people haven't dealt with logs of this size. People haven't dealt with websites of this size. It's extremely common if you have a web server to have one machine, right, uh, and the database running on the same machine. It's unusual to have them split out at this point, right? Uh, so, so this is really, really early. And so I, you know, ended up building a lot of that analytics framework so that we could say what was resulting in the sales. Oh, look, you know, it's the recommendation system that, uh, that's resulting in the sales. That's, you know, it, we should get credit for that. Uh, later, a different team uh, built out the experimental platform, uh, which was fantastic. So th this was extremely early, early again. This is back in uh, the, uh, the late 90s. Um, uh, right around 97, actually. Um, and Amazon, if it wasn't the first, it was definitely one of the first to have the ability to run A-B tests. Uh, so this is an experimental platform, an A-B test, where you show different customers a different website. So customer A sees this website. Customer B sees this website. Uh, and the websites are usually very subtly different, like this website might be showing uh, the most popular books on the home page. This other website might be showing uh, you know, a list of recommended books based on your purchase history. And when you have that ability to say, okay, well, this group of customers A saw the popular books content. This group of customers B saw uh, the recommendation content. And then you have that credit assignment ability, so you can say, well, who generated the sale? And you can trace it all the way back to that popular book content or that recommendation content. Now you have the ability to say, who wins, right? Was it, which, which is better? Should we put the popular book content up there or the recommendation book, the recommendation list content up there? And when you have that ability, it's incredibly powerful because you don't have to decide you don't have to decide things by you know some executive saying like I want my marketing ad you know up at the top of the home page you know instead you can say well if you put that marketing ad up on the top of the home page it's going to lower sales by 3% you know do you have the budget to compensate for that 3% right um, you don't have to have an executive saying like okay well we want to feature editorial reviews up at the top of the site you can say, okay, well, let's run an A-B test. Okay, well, when we put the editorial reviews at the top of the site, we lost 2% of sales. Um, you know, so you can't put the editorial reviews on the top of the website. Uh, so no longer are you relying on what's sometimes referred to as the, the highest paid person's opinion, HIPPO. Um, instead, 
you can actually test things and determine what works best and what doesn't. And the recommendation content tended to work really, really well. It generated a lot of sales. And and we'll say again, I mean, this is incredibly common today down to the level of, you know, testing different shades of blue for to get that, you know, 0.3% change in, in, in activations or clicks or anything like that. But you're, you're arguing that uh, Amazon was the first to do this, obviously, in commerce, but maybe to do this for websites um, on a large scale anywhere. Uh, well, right. I, mean, I think Amazon, at least to my knowledge, Amazon was the first to do this. They, they may, if may not, if they weren't the first, they were one of the first. You know, Google is well known for running just enormous numbers of tests on their uh, website now. That shades of color example that you gave, uh, Google, you know, is runs tests in order to see if the you know tiny differences in the shade of color uh, make a difference in uh, their metrics on search quality. Um, but, you know, you have to remember, this is that way back in 1997. This is the very early days. This is, you know, before cookies were, you know, web, web-based cookies were common. This is way before JavaScript, way before CSS, way before any of this stuff, way before, you know, uh, there was scale-out, way before people had thousands of machines to run their website. You know, most websites ran on one machine. Uh, at this point. Uh, so this is really early days, and Amazon is really early in building this kind of experimental platform. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You mentioned scale, um, and it it seems like, uh, you know, every company that, that I delve into, every person that I talk to, someone has uh, a crazy story of, you know, the, the, the time the site went down or the, the time we thought we lost that server and we lost all the customer records. Um, was it a, a difficult thing to, to start to scale up to millions of customers and then, you know, not just one machine, but, you know, a room full of machines and then a, a warehouse full of machines and things like that? Like, what, what were, the, what were the, the growing pains like in terms of achieving the unbelievable scale that Amazon would eventually achieve? Well, that's that's right. I mean, we could barely keep the wheels on the bus at this point. Uh, you know, it, it was a uh, it's a constant struggle, especially around Christmas time. You know, most retailers uh, their sales, um, pretty much all of their sales and profit comes in uh, around the holiday season, uh, and around Christmas time, you know, we'd have to scale up to handle you know, four times the load. And then, kind of oddly, that load would usually stick. So, you know, we'd, it wasn't like you'd scale up for four times the load and then the load would drop back down. Instead, you know, every Christmas it would jump up just some ridiculous amount and then stay there. Uh, and then next, you know, keep going up for the next year and then around Christmas jump by some ridiculous amount uh, again. And so, we, yeah, we had to, you know, when I first came, there, were, we had, there was one web server, a huge amount of dependencies in the code on the idea of having one web server. Uh, it accessed uh, information off of, you know, remote file systems. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a technique, uh, uh, um, oh boy, it's been so long. I think it's NFS. Uh, yeah, so it was NFS. Um, and it, it basically would mount the the drive off of another system and then access it, and that was incredibly fragile and a single point of failure. Um, and uh, you know there was only one other database. The database wasn't you know nowadays it's just routine to have multiple databases, but this is way before databases supported replication. Um, you know this is way at this point. Uh, you know, Cisco, 
produced load balancers, but this was the extremely early days of load balancers, so the load balancers were really flaky. You know, they didn't work properly to try to uh, distribute your load across multiple web servers. Um, and we, we had to do everything with kind of taking, you know, what, what was, you know, a very rapidly written code base with lots of dependencies on it being a single web server uh, and turn it into multiple web servers and eliminate any dependencies on the file system. Um, and nowadays, again, this is all commonplace, uh, but this is the early days of the web, and I think Amazon, you know, was one of the first to do this. Um, I know at the time eBay, for uh, for example, was trying to make a decision about whether to do scale out to lots of cheap uh, Linux servers or whether to scale up and just add much, much more hardware and essentially start running on a supercomputer um, instead of uh, running on multiple computers. And they chose scale up uh, at this point. So for years they were, uh, they were just continuing to run on more and more powerful computers to avoid this problem of splitting onto multiple sites. And, you know, today that sounds kind of silly, right, because everyone's so used to scale out. But at the time, there was a real debate about this, you know, do you scale out or scale up? Um, and a lot of people were on the scale up side. It was actually pretty unusual to, to, uh, to lean towards scale out. Google is well known for doing scale out too, of course, with their uh, corkboard servers, um, their famous corkboard servers where they, uh, <laughs> where, where uh, you know, Sergey and Larry, you know, basically just attached computer components uh, to a corkboard with push pins and kind of shoved them into a cabinet um, in order to get their early servers. So they, they were, Google was very early too in, uh, in using lots of cheap servers. You mentioned eBay, um, and I, I'm, I'm beginning uh, work on, on researching eBay, so I've spoken to my first couple of eBay people. Um, <laughs> but So I've, I've gotten the story of when Amazon goes into auctions from their side of it, but that, that's another uh, project that you mentioned on your blog, so I'd, I'd love to hear um, the Amazon side of the, the foray into, um, into auctions. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a crazy project. Uh, so uh, Jeff, you know, at one point, uh, you know, saw how well eBay was doing. I think he had uh, he got uh, concerned, and he wanted to launch something uh, very similar using the auction model. Uh, at the time, the thought was the the auction model was the key to eBay's success. So this bidding process um, was really what uh, was driving eBay's growth, and it was very addictive, uh, very fun. Um, and so the, the whole pricing model of bidding uh, at the time was thought to be what was really important. Now eBay at this point, you know, it sounds kind of silly now because eBay at this point has actually switched mostly to a fixed price model. There right. still is bidding on the site, but, right. but they're actually much closer to Amazon or, or Overstock now, um, you know, because they do a lot of liquidations, uh, you know, and use stuff. Uh, so almost closer to uh to you know, Amazon now, uh, but at the time, you know, the important thing was thought to be this kind of fun uh, pricing model of bidding. Um, so anyway, the, uh, the secret project uh, kicked off inside of Amazon. I think this was uh, this may have even uh, this may have uh, been right after Christmas. I think so. We were all exhausted uh, from trying to keep the wheels on the buses. The uh, you know crushing Christmas retail load came in. And we should and, say we should point out again that obviously it's all hands on deck at, at that point. Like you you yourself are going into the warehouse to 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 pack packages and stuff at that point. That's right. I mean, when it gets to the point, as it starts to get closer to Christmas, um, you can't launch a feature anymore. You can't launch code to the website anymore. Um, you know, you've, you've done the scaling work you're going to be able to do. The only things you can launch at that point are things that are just like catastrophic bug fixes, like, you know, sales are dropping or, you know, uh, there's an infinite loop or something, and you launch something just to fix that. But as it gets really close to Christmas, like you do not want to launch anything that changes the code anymore because you risk the stability of the website and the amount of sales you might lose if there's a you know a 30-minute website outage is just so large uh, that you wouldn't even consider launching any changes anymore. So it's kind of funny because the software engineers are super critical, uh, you know, coming in the 
the months up to Christmas, and all of a sudden, you know, your programming ability is uh, useless, right? <laughs> because you can't watch code anyway. And the only important thing is getting books, you know, wrapped in you know packages and out the door, right? So. Uh, all the programmers ended up going down, you know, to the warehouse, uh, or, you know, customer service also gets a really crushing load. So a lot of uh, people were sitting at their desk answering emails. So you might actually have been talking to one of uh, Amazon's programmers uh, when you would email Amazon and say, hey, where's my book? Uh, you know, it might have been someone who actually, you know, wrote core pieces of the website, uh, you know, answering your, <laughs> your customer service email. Um, so, so, so that's right. I mean, that, that's what the Christmas season was like. And then with the auctions, um, you know, we were just kind of recovering from that crushing uh, Christmas load. And, uh, you know, a secret project kicks off. We're given three months, three months to uh, build eBay. Uh, that's what we're told to do. We're told, you know, you have three months. You have to uh, replicate essentially everything eBay uh, has. And so, you know, first we try to figure out, okay, well, what does that actually mean? And, you know, okay, well, a couple of these things here and there can be dropped. But then, you know, basically in the two and a half months we had left at that point, we had to build everything eBay had done over years. And we did. And we launched uh, this auction site. And it turned out to be a complete flop <laughs> um, in, in large part because, uh, you know, there were just not enough buyers and sellers that didn't have the critical mass. Uh, and, you know, in retrospect, some of us argued this at the time, but in retrospect, you know, going whole hog after eBay, trying to go after every part of their business was pretty arrogant. Um, what uh, Amazon probably should have done is pick off areas like, you know, books uh, and music and said, okay, you know, we're going to be, you know, the place to do auctions for books or music. Or they could have done liquidations or something, uh, something that's kind of a segment and pick that piece off and then expand. And ultimately, that is actually what Amazon did. They launched um, the ability for third-party sellers to use Amazon's catalog, which is one of Amazon's big advantages over eBay, is the catalog that says, you know, these are our real books. Um, and third-party sellers could say, okay, I want to sell that book too. Um, but the auction part was dropped. It went to fixed price. Uh, and ultimately, a very successful product did get launched out of it. It's just the attempt to kind of uh, take, uh, take eBay on, you know, with this full frontal assault, very ambitious uh, in three months, um, even though the even though the code is pretty glorious, you know, it was pretty much eBay just reproduced. Um, it didn't have the critical mass, and mm -hmm. it just couldn't succeed uh, from a business standpoint. Right. Um, you uh, you you stay at Amazon through two thousand two, two thousand three, right? Oh, that's right. And yep. and you're 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 staying though involved heavily in in the personalization aspect of things, correct? That's right. I was working in uh, in personalization and recommendations pretty much the entire time. So uh, you know, it's so funny because um, that's so much of what we think of of Amazon is that I it, it is things like how how personalized it is, and and it seems like if if that wasn't if that's something that that Amazon as a company evolved into, um, it, maybe it's because it, it fit like that customer centric model. Like it, it, how how do you feel like this 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 obsession with personalization and, and data like that uh, sort of took over at Amazon? Well, I do think, uh, you know, Jeff uh, was a computer scientist, actually. So I do think he really liked uh, some aspects of automating uh, the website uh, and this uh, idea of discovery that uh, computers uh, could help people find books that they couldn't find themselves. You can't search for something you don't know about. Uh, so you can find books that you know exist on Amazon, but you can't find a book that you don't know exists. And I think, uh, I think Jeff himself was very interested in this idea of discovery. How do you find uh, the great book you don't know exists? So he, he was enormously supportive of that. Um, also, he you know, was pretty uh, willing to, you know, 
there's been other executives that are much more hierarchical and uh, authoritarian and, you know, insist, you know, insist on kind of a strict top-down structure. He was very willing to uh, have people, you know, even me at, you know, low levels of the company, just a programmer, uh, talk to him and tell him that he was wrong or talk to other executives and tell them they were wrong. Uh, we, we could do that and he would back us up, uh, especially if we were proven to be right, ultimately. Um, actually, a really nice story on this, if I can tell it, Absolutely. Uh, is, the, uh, is the shopping cart recommendations, uh, which, which is an incredibly useful feature. Uh, and this, this uses the recommendation engine again, and it's, uh, it basically says, you know, people who bought uh, the things that are in your shopping cart also bought and recommends uh, other items you might want to add to your shopping cart. And the intent here is to be a little bit like um, the impulse buys at the checkout lane, right? So, you know, when you go to the supermarket, you fill up your shopping cart with stuff, and you go to checkout, and there's, you know, those candy bars and, the uh, you know, the mints and all the other little impulse buys sitting there trying to uh, trying to get themselves to be added to your card, right? They're just sitting there, and you're like, oh, okay, I'll buy that candy bar, right? Um, well, the idea with the shopping cart recommendations is to be a much better version of that. So uh, it would be like if you rolled your shopping cart up to the checkout lane, and those impulse buys magically rearrange themselves based on what's in your shopping cart. So if you, you know, were buying mostly candy, it might still be candy bars. But if you, you know, were buying, uh, if you were buying lots of fruit, uh, it might be showing you, you know, other types of fruit that you might want to add to your cart. Uh, so it'd be much more targeted and personalized uh, impulse buys, trying to get you to add a few more things as you're on your way out the door. And what was interesting about this is it's a great example of the highest person's, uh, highest paid person's opinion, the hippo, uh, not winning at Amazon. So uh, I prototyped this feature and showed it around. Um, and uh, a lot of people were interested in it, but one of the executives said no. He said, I'm too worried that it's going to distract people from checking out. So his fear, and this is legitimate, his fear was that uh, people would see these impulse buys and be like, uh, oh, you know, wow, that's really cool, and I'm going to click on that and look at that. And they'd get distracted, and they'd never check out. They'd forget to check out. They'd abandon their cart. Um, and that, that is a legitimate view. Uh, but he actually took a pretty hard line on it. He said, I know I'm right about this. I know the abandons are going to be huge, um, and this is going to cost us sales. So, no, you can't launch this feature. And I just went ahead and ran an A-B test anyway. So I actually didn't tell him. I just ran the A-B test. And so a small percentage of customers saw the shopping cart. And what we saw, we ran this A-B test, this experiment, and what we saw is a huge bump in sales. It, I mean, it was an enormously successful feature, and the abandons didn't go up at all. Uh, we couldn't even detect a change in uh, people abandoning their cart. So, uh, so, you know, despite this being a legitimate concern, the data said, you know, no, like, launch this thing immediately, and that's what we did. We launched it immediately. And, you know, it's a great example of data winning out over opinion. And anytime you can have data win out over opinion, it's definitely the way to go. And so you're you're positing that, that that's one of uh, Bezos's strength is that he's willing to follow the data, uh, the logical data, no matter what. That's right. I mean, he... he he views you know, customer satisfaction as being the top thing. And if you can show on a measure of you know, customer happiness, uh, and sales is definitely a measure of customer happiness. It's an imperfect one, but it's one of them. Um, if you can show that customers are happier with this feature than they were without, uh, you win. And it doesn't really matter what other people's opinions are about it. Uh, your feature goes up. And that was Jeff's, Jeff's leadership. Jeff said, you know, uh, Jeff said, if you can uh, if you can prove in the data that this feature should be launched, we will launch the feature. 
<laughs> a couple a couple of blue sky questions related to that sort of sure. thing. Um uh, what to to work for Bezos personally, um he's he's very you're he's very demanding I've heard from other people, but at the same time you're describing that he's also He's also very open-minded. So, like, just generally, like, what what was your opinion of of him as a leader and a boss? Uh, well, actually, I liked him a lot and got along with him a lot. But uh, I think part of the reason for that, um, I think uh, part of the reason for other people's more negative reaction is that uh, he uh, he has an extremely negative reaction. To uh, people trying to, you know, pull something over on him, uh, trying to BS him. Um, it's uh, just not. Uh, if you try to do that to him, he's a very smart guy. Uh, and if you try to do that to him, and you don't admit, uh, you know, if you screw up and you don't admit you screwed up, he's going to come after you, right? Because you need to say, "I screwed up," and then, you know, then he'll be like, "Okay, you screwed up. What are we going to do about it now?" Right? Um, that's fine, right? Or, you know, if you are pitching a feature to him and he brings up an objection to your feature, and you don't have a good response to that, um, and you try to just kind of, you know, slime your way through it, um, he's going to have a really negative reaction, and he's just not going to let go. He'll he will just keep pounding at that thing until you either say, like, I don't know, I will go, you know, figure out how to deal with that. That's, you know, that's a legitimate thing. Or you present him with a, with a real argument that he shouldn't be concerned about that, that, uh, you know, that is based on data and not just, you know, you trying to kind of hide the, uh, hide the thing and kind of smooth it over. Um, so I, my my impression of him actually is that he is uh, he is a pleasant guy, um, but you know I mean I've heard I, I've actually never met Bill Gates, but I've heard Bill Gates also has this uh, this property where if you try to go in front of him and you know don't admit error or try to pull something over on him, uh, you get uh, in a lot of trouble um, with him. And uh, I think Jeff has that feature as well, and some people don't like that. I personally love it, but uh, some people don't like that. Uh, two more blue sky questions that are related. Um, on a personal level, you know, the the, the company you join is a, is a small outfit. You, you you can know the handful of people that are working there, and your desk is in the kitchen. What on a personal level, what's it like to ride this amazing ride where within a few years, you know, you you have sales of billions of dollars, you have tens and hundreds of millions of customers. Like, what was that like? Just that explosion of of growth and 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 how do you handle that on a personal level? Uh, well, I'd say it was both, you know, awesome and painful. Um, you know, it was awesome in that it was very exciting to be part of. Uh, part of this growth and part of this company that's impacted so many that's changed, you know, retail in the United States. Uh, that, that is very exciting. Um, but you know, what's, what's not so great about it. I mean, I did join a bookstore. Uh, I really wanted to sell books. I was really excited about helping people find knowledge. Uh, that was a huge part of my motivation. Um, and as the company grew, and moved into other product lines, I was still pretty excited. But then as the company grew again, people started coming into the company that didn't have that same um, that, that same drive uh, to see the company succeed. And this is totally understandable. This is actually my problem, not theirs. Um, they would come in much later, and you know they'd be focused on their little piece and wouldn't be concerned about something else or the bigger picture. Um, or much worse, uh, yeah, some people started to come in around the time of the IPO uh, that were just kind of latching on, trying to get rich quick, um, and didn't have kind of the, uh, the, the interest in the, the company itself in selling books and selling knowledge uh, that I had. I found that kind of discouraging. Um, but that was really my problem with not being able to adjust to the growth. I mean, I could go back there now. Uh, you know, it's a large company now, but I've, I've been in Microsoft too. That's, a, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. an enormous uh, company. I could go back there now and have no problem. It was just at the time to make that transition was very difficult personally for me, and I think uh, a lot of the other early people also had some difficulty with that transition. 
So the related question then is, um, this is a little beyond uh, where we've gotten in the podcast in terms of chronology, but um, you stay there through the dot-com bubble bursting. And I'm wondering, was there, being an employee in, at Amazon in late 2001, 2002, 2003, was there a fear possibly that, that Amazon might go under at any point? Uh, there, no, not really. Uh, not that. Um not a fear that it would go under. I mean, there were there were some issues. I mean, a high-level executive, Joe Galli, came in, and he wasn't very popular. Um, so there were, you know, there were some morale issues that came up. I would say I don't think anyone uh, thought the company was uh, you know, was financially unstable or all a scam or something at any point. Uh, that that. You know, there was, a, I think, some kind of famous article in mm-hmm. .con or something. Right. Um, but, uh, but that was not a view inside the company. You know, the morale problems, I think, were more created by things like uh, Joe Galli than, um, uh, than, you know, the crash. And the crash had very little to do with why I left. I, I uh, you know, I left because the company had grown bigger and I was, you know, having trouble adjusting to its new size. Um, and also, I was getting a little uh, a little bored. I wanted to move on to something else, uh, something new. Uh, in particular, I wanted to try a startup. Um, I was also really fascinated with the idea of applying personalization and recommendations to information. So I was uh, I was uh, focused on this idea of information overload. That there's so much news and email and everything coming in. Uh, to our lives, and what if we could use uh, personalization and recommendations to help filter that and help discover things you didn't know about yet, that news article that you wouldn't think of searching for and wouldn't find on your own. So I was really fascinated with those kind of ideas uh, and wanted to work on those. There was no way to work on those uh, within Amazon. But that does become um, uh, Findery, uh, which you found in, in 2003. And Findery uh, eventually sells to Microsoft. That's how you end up at Microsoft, right? That's right, right. And then I went to, to Microsoft for a little while. And uh, uh, since then, I've been working in uh, educational games. Uh, I've always wanted to work in games and education, and I finally have a chance to do that. So that, that's been a lot of fun. Um, well, well, we'll end with that in just a second. But uh, because it, it is interesting to me that, that the, 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 the through line in, in your career is this... Um, like this obsession obsession maybe is a strong word but this this idea of personalization that you keep that you keep plugging away mm-hmm. at and uh you, you do it in findery uh personalization of news and and discovery of news that that would be of interest uh, i'm curious how what would you think of the personalization not industry but technology today in the age of social i mean because obviously you know we've mentioned netflix a bunch of times and and it things like having personalized cues and personalized new it seems so common and every day now but i'm wondering what you think of how how that technology has has evolved well i do think uh i do think it's become much much more commonplace you know, the uh item to item collaborative filtering algorithm was brand new no one had done that back in 97 uh amazon put it in place and nowadays it's used all over the place i mean youtube uses it you know, google uses it uh and uh, Netflix uh, has used it at various points. I'm not exactly sure what they're using right now. You know, Netflix has just done a tremendous job with their personalization and recommendations. Their entire site is just one giant recommendation engine. Mm-hmm. Apparently, uh, something like 85% of movie views uh, go through something that's uh, been processed by their recommendation engine. Only 15% uh, are coming from search. Uh, which is just crazy. I mean, usually search is by far dominant. Um, so Netflix is just a, a tremendous example of personalization. But there's still so many opportunities for it. Um, you know, newspapers are doing a pretty miserable job of surfacing uh, the news you're interested in, I think. Um, you know, uh, the whole idea of personalization of information that I was very interested in, I think, has only barely been done. Uh, search engines like Google uh, still don't pay much attention 
to any of your past behavior. They're just starting to pay a little more attention to it now. But uh, it's always, when you do a Google search, it's always been treated as a one-shot deal. You know, you do this search, and then you do another search, and, you know, that other search is completely independent of that first search you did, and that's never true. Uh, it's almost always the case that when you do searches on Google, you're doing one search, and then you're like, oh, I didn't find what I wanted, so you do another search, mm -hmm. you refine your search, and then you do another search, and you refine that. And if you know, Google's just showing you the same results they showed everyone else and ignoring that information of what you just didn't find and what you just did. Uh, so personalized search is still in its infancy. Uh, personalized advertising is still uh, very early on. The, the height of the technology right now is often just refinding. So that's, you know, oh, you know, look, you browsed, uh, you browsed and saw, you know, this, uh, this movie on Overstock. So now when you go to the BBC uh, homepage, we're going to show you that same movie uh, again on the BBC homepage and, and be like, hey, you know, you looked at that movie. Maybe you want to go buy that movie again, you know, and that, that, that kind of refinding is a very si uh, simple form of personalization. Um, and it could be much, much better. Like imagine if the advertising instead was like, oh, you know, you looked at that movie. Well, did you know that uh, this other movie, which people who like that movie, um, is on sale? And you can get it, you know, in Blu-ray for, you know, $7. And you'd be like, whoa, I didn't know that. That's, uh, you know, I just discovered something through, you know, your advertising on the BBC site. I'm going to go buy that right now, right? They don't do that yet. Uh, there's none of that kind of personalization and recommendation yet of information going on or the, the level that is going on is, is still extremely early. You know what, while you're saying that, um, you gave me an idea of, of a company you didn't mention, which is Twitter. And I'm going to suggest yeah. that, that you go talk to Twitter and help them. If I could, if I could get the tweets that I would really want to see, uh, you know, uh, uh, bubble up for me that that would totally revolutionize twitter especially for like casual or early twitter users or something so that, that's my yeah, two cents they, go help twitter yeah, that's, that, you know, that's a great idea and it's an idea that's kind of been kicked around in a few ways you know there's a few apps that try to process your twitter feed often they filter by social relationships so you know this other person that you follow uh you know seemed interested in this tweet, and so we're going to surface that to the top rather than showing you it in strict chronological order, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and Twitter itself has a discovery feature that's trying to do a little bit of a personalization. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit hidden. It's not their main timeline. Mm -hmm. um, again, they don't really work that well. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done on, on all those to get them to really work well. Well, before we go, uh, do tell me a little bit about what you're up to now about um, uh, Geeky Ventures and Crunchzilla. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, you know, going back to, uh, to my theme of, uh, I mean, there's a famous line that, uh, you know, I've ruined uh, many careers by getting bored. And I think that's, <laughs> that's kind of a theme in my career uh, where, you know, I was at uh, Amazon and I could have continued going at Amazon, but... Uh, you know, to some, extent, uh, to some extent, I was bored. To some extent, a little frustrated, and wanted to do something else. So then I did the startup, um, and then you know, got a little bored with that. And then I, uh, I had this dream of always wanting to work at Microsoft Research. I didn't quite get to work at Microsoft Research, but I got to work near them, uh, which was fantastic. I mean, the people at Microsoft mm -hmm. Research are just like, just brilliant. Um, so that that was that was unbelievably great. Um, and then you know, after that, you know, I got. Um, I got a little bored with that, and Microsoft actually did its first layoffs ever, so uh, that was pretty discouraging. Uh, and so I, I left among that, uh, and uh, and then um, you know worked on something else that I always wanted to work on. That's just radically different, which is uh, games and education. Um, in particular, I launched a series of websites to teach kids to code. Um, th this was pretty early. This was before. Uh, code.org was so uh, so prevalent with the hour of code idea. Mm -hmm, right. Um, they're they're doing a magnificent job, by the way. I mean, they they have gotten just tremendous numbers of people to try at least a little bit of coding. Uh, Scratch at MIT has also gotten a tremendous number of people to try just a little bit of coding, and those are both just absolutely fantastic. 
Um, oh, and I can't recommend uh, Khan Academy's uh, new CS program oh. enough, too. Uh, that, that's fantastic, too. It's a little bit similar to Crunzilla's stuff. Um, the big difference, Crunzilla's stuff is a little bit more advanced in that you write in real code. Um, all the code can be just cut and pasted out and run in a web page. Uh, none of the other uh, sites have that property, so it's all learning real usable uh, uh, coding skills, and it's mostly intended for kids. Although you know, curious adults can try it too. Mm-hmm. If it crunchzilla. Excellent, uh, yep. Greg Linden. Thank you so much for um, for taking the time to remember all that for us. Oh, sure, sure. It was really fun. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.